Welcome to today's episode of the Wharton Fintech Podcast. I'm your host, Ryan Zhao, and today I sit down with Max Friedrich, Lead Fintech Analyst at ARK Invest. ARK Invest focuses solely on disruptive innovation and offers investment solutions to investors seeking long-term growth in the public markets. They offer numerous products, including ETFs across technologies like genomics, autonomous tech and robots, space innovation, and of course, fintech. Max focuses on ARC-F, their fintech innovation ETF. I have linked a ton of information in the episode description where you can learn more about ARC. It was great having Max on the podcast today as we discuss ARC's five big ideas that they believe future historians will name as as big of a disruptor as a computer or electricity, why Tesla was missed by so many great analysts, Max's thoughts on digital wallets, China, Alipay, and what this means for U.S. super apps, his square bull thesis and their incredible $5 CAC, his thoughts on private valuations, the power of Twitter, and so much more. Let's get started. Hi, Max, and welcome to today's episode of the Wharton Fintech Podcast. We're very excited to have you on the show as a guest today. Thank you very much for having me. Pretty excited as well. Thanks. So, Max, going into your background a little bit, you know, you started at a Berlin VC called Redstone before joining ARC. And, you know, going from private market to public market research is pretty rare, at least in the US. Most people, you know, do, you know, two years of IB or equity research and then jump in. So, what was, you know, the rationale between making this move and, of course, ARC making this type of hire? So, I would say for me personally, it was pretty. Seamless. I worked at the venture capital firm that you were just mentioning actually during college in Germany. We have this thing, it's called working student. It's kind of like a, you're kind of like a constant intern. So I worked there during studying and then also worked at another institution at a more traditional economic research center. So I always enjoyed both doing research and then also just finding out stuff about technology and just being interested in that. So that combination that I did actually during college of like VC and that research institute I was in, I think that translates pretty well into my job at ARC and ultimately why I decided to apply and was able to join. And that path, just generally not hiring a traditional, out of traditional kind of finance paths, is also very typical for ARC. And I think it's also part of what makes ARC special. And uh, the general thinking behind that is that it's, easier to equip either people with very deep sector or technology knowledge with skills around finance than the other way around. And also just equip people that are just by nature very curious about technology to to equip them with finance skills, like I said, than the other way around. And I think the perfect example is kind of our genomic analysts, Ali and Simon, Simon coming from Johns Hopkins, I think having an a engineering degree in, in two kind of biotech-related bioengineering fields and Ali actually having patents in her field doing cancer research and so, and, and so forth. And we think it makes actually a ton of sense to kind of take those people that really understand the technologies that the companies are applying on a very deep level and equip them with the finance skills that you would learn in an MBA. And I think that has proven to be a good strategy for ARC. 
And I think another another thing is that it kind of keeps us in touch with what's happening in the real world, especially around new technologies that are often adopted by younger people. So the, the analysts are often the people that use the technology. So number of things, I think, that kind of separate ARC from other traditional shops. Absolutely. And for our listeners who want to learn more, I've linked a ton of information about ARC and their various funds in the episode description. But for our listeners who might not be as familiar, you know, Max, what is ARC Invest and how can investors learn more and get involved with all of this work that your team is doing? So ARC is an asset management firm based in New York, founded in 2014 by Kathy Wood. And Kathy brings a lot of experience in the public equity space of, I think, over 40 years now. She actually started as an economist, so she studied economics. So she was uh, chief economist at a number of, or at one firm, an economist at a number of firms, as well as an analyst, always focused on the technology side. Then in the 2000s, she was at Alliance Bernstein and managed uh, thematic portfolios there. And what I think she recognized is that the world was moving so fast in a number of different ways, where the traditional asset management industry wasn't really designed to keep up with it. And that's why she decided to start her own firm and her own funds. So there are kind of three different areas, I think, that she identified where she thought things should be set up differently. The first one is to have a longer time horizon. So we at ARC, we try to basically find technologies or we have identified through our own research, these five technology platforms. But we believe that uh, future historians are going to look back up on them and say, hey, this was a big thing as was the computer or electrification. And those five innovation platforms for us are gene sequencing and editing, AI, robots, energy storage, and blockchain. And we basically model those out on a five or even longer time year horizon. And think that by doing that kind of long-term work, we can identify basically inefficiencies in the market where we think that the market has not really priced in the opportunities that are embedded in those innovation platforms that we identified with our research. And that is obviously different from a more kind of short-term outlook that, that a lot of Wall Street has. And so that's the first thing, the kind of the long-term time horizon. The second thing is that she saw already in the 2000s and early 2010s that the different technologies were converging and that made it harder for traditional research departments to really holistically understand companies. So one example that obviously also is very prominent in the media is Tesla, where we think that at least for the last few years, it was really hard for a traditional automotive analysts at a sell side or buy side, mostly, well, they were covered up on the sell side, to really understand the company, company like Tesla, holistically. You really need to look at the company from a number of different perspectives to really understand it. You need to look at it from an energy storage perspective because it's about battery technology. You need to look at it from an AI perspective because there's obviously the big call option of autonomous driving, and they're also already using their own AI hardware chips. And you can even say 
maybe this is kind of a robot that is driving around there on the streets already, maybe now to some extent, but to a higher extent right. even in the future. And this kind of convergence is hard to understand for traditional analysts, we think. At least it was in, in the past. I think now people are kind of more waking up to this new reality. And also because the traditional automotive analyst, he was probably you know covering all these different auto uh, manufacturers and brands for like decades. <laughs> and every year it was like, well, now Ford is better than GM, or now this is better than that. And then you know, this new technology is coming yeah. up, electric vehicles, and he is basically on earnings calls and with uh, the CFO of these companies that he covers that he probably knows for decades. And maybe they are telling him like, hey, you know, this is probably not going to work out. Or if it's going to work out, you know, we can just buy up the asset when it's cheap. And then we're just going to integrate it. Um, <laughs> so yeah. it's like there, I think there are a number of kind of dynamics at play that make it or in the past have made it difficult for some of the traditional Wall Street to understand kind of the convergence. And the third point is around social media. And that is that, again, a lot, I wouldn't say that the South side, they're the great analysts there, but I wouldn't say it's it, they're ill-equipped to understand some of the trends. But what I would say is that the value add that you get from talking to experts uh, on social media, often for free, can actually be pretty yeah. high, especially on Twitter. You know, whether that's your anonymous, you know, buy side analyst that's on there or or product manager for me in the fintech space that actually has skin in the game and like has done this for a number of years on a very deep level and understands like regulatory ramifications and whatnot. That exchange is actually pretty important. And a way to, in our opinion, at least to actually access even more of that is to also embed yourself into those conversations and discussions. So that's why all the ARC analysts are on Twitter and they share their research and they try to engage with others on Twitter. We've also put some of our models on GitHub and actually gotten responses as well. That's, I think, also another interesting effect of this is that especially if you're in the business of forecasting often exponential growth over a long time period, your input assumptions are actually pretty important because if you're wrong on them, you're going to be exponentially wrong. So first of all, having to publish something or put something on social media makes you already a more diligent analyst in a sense because you're putting your skin in the game. But then if you put it on there and somebody proves you wrong, it's actually good for you because you can revisit your thesis or data or whatever. And I think that for me also has been proving to be pretty effective where I learn from others on Twitter. They paint sometimes point point out where I'm wrong, but also meet a lot of people on Twitter. And a lot of people also meet ARC on Twitter and other social media, right? So that's kind of where you were talking to. How can people find out about ARC? I think the fact that we are on social media and put out you know, YouTube videos and podcasts and so forth obviously also helps us to connect with potential clients. But the relationship is really two ways. So those are kind of the three differentiators that I think are key to understanding ARC. No, this probably was a very long answer, but that's <laughs> kind of the, the main three things. No, Max, this is fantastic. I mean, ARC, it seems, is on the cover of a new magazine every week, and I want to hear it from you instead of, you know, these third-party Kathy Wood takedowns or hype pieces that I see every day. 
you know, and I just love the quasi open source building in public approach that you all take. It's really unusual for financial services. And regarding Twitter, you know, to our listeners, I think I mentioned Twitter in almost every episode that we have. I think it's one of the most mispriced tools and times you can spend on any tool in the world. And I'm not talking about the stock. I'm just talking about it as a tool to better yourself. You can learn from such amazing people, get incredible access that you would never be able to otherwise, make friends in your industry, and just learn a lot in real time. If you're ruthlessly careful about who you let on your timeline, it's really powerful. And, you know, I'll be sure to link ARC's Twitter and website in the description. You know, to our audience, we would love to hear from you on Twitter. So I want to get to valuation, of course, Max. You know, these world-changing companies and trends that we talk about, though promising, usually come with world-changing valuations, you know, extreme premiums and multiples for future growth. It's easy to spot, you know, that Square or Spotify or Tesla is a great company, but maybe not in the context of their valuation. How does your team think about this phenomena and not overpaying for these great companies? Yeah. So the metric that we use internally is basically a rate of return over the next five years that kind of serves as our threshold for the rate. That's 15%. So generally, we will only hold companies in our funds that we think that will return 15% annually over the next five years. And obviously, as the market goes up, that number goes down. And <laughs> as the market goes down, that number goes up. Right. That actually speaks a bit to the active management at ARC. Uh, so we can actually take advantage of that volatility to some extent where we have a five-year time horizon. And if a company is uh, beaten earnings and is high-flying and another company has missed on the bottom line because they're investing too much or something, something that we actually think is a long-term positive. Right. And then, you know, what is happening is if we see those CAGRs going down and we see that happening over a long time and we it's dipping under 15% and we're revisiting our models and have found that we're confident in them, then we will sell the name because it's uh, that's kind of the value that we want to bring mm -hmm. to our shareholders is that 15%. That's kind of right. what we write, what we kind of stand for. So I, I would say though there are like a number of small there there are a number of companies where this becomes a little bit tricky because even if you have a lower than fifteen percent CAGR, what could happen is that the company is just so good and its value <laughs> so high, and I think Shopify is a great example of that. It just has so much optionality. Right. where you have so many different call options embedded into the company that are often hard to quantify, really. Like what is happening if, and Shopify officially say they don't want to do this, but if they're moving closer to a marketplace with their shop right. app, right? And are merging those two ecosystems that they already kind of have. So there are a number of companies where that is a little bit more difficult and maybe we'll be more comfortable also with a CAGR between 10 and 15%. But generally, that's really what we go after. So I think generally on average across the funds, that kind of average CAGR um, for us is between, I think, around 20 to 25% at the moment still, or 15 to 25, somewhere in, in that range, depending on the fund. 
And I think if that as a whole moved below 15, I think then we're at the moment where we we have, we have to ask ourselves what is happening here and what is happening in the market where these return expectations can't be met anymore. But I think until that, we are pretty good, especially if we're kind of looking in over the last few weeks where obviously we had a, a, a lot of volatility, but in our view, really without any fundamental change to the businesses. Like for me, it's nothing much changed to our, my square thesis over the last few weeks. It's right. just been going up and down, but really fundamental change to the company wasn't really there. So that's kind of how we think about valuation. And then generally, we, like I said, we, we think on a five-year time horizon. So often on my end, valuation start with a kind of a top-down model of you know defining a TAM and TAM penetration and then assigning EBITDA margins that that we think that are possible in the future, EV to EBITDA multiples that are actually not completely crazy, but are actually more influenced by a, the question, what multiple would a even a technology skeptic in five years just pay for the cash flow of this business? What would it be actually worth without any crazy multiple? And I think for now, this has worked well for us. And I think it's actually the right approach. And I think if you think about these opportunities over five-year time horizon, we can still, like I said, underwrite the portfolio as it is. So that's kind of the approach. Yeah. So two different directions I want to take this in, one being your Mm -hmm. square thesis, the other one being kind of your valuation framework that's covered in your big ideas for 2021. Let's start with big ideas presentation for 2021. This is a presentation that ARC released not too long ago. I will link it as well in the episode that kind of just lays out their big conviction ideas and thinking across a variety of sectors over the coming years. So in that presentation, you talk a lot about digital wallets and thinking about how to value it from an investing standpoint. And you kind of did this top-down TAM view. Can you just explain to our listeners, you know, the high-level summary of your thoughts on digital wallets and this presentation? Yeah. So for us, where it really started is in China, where we saw WeChat Pay and Alipay emerge over the last 10 years. And I mentioned this before, Kathy is an economist by trade. And I think for mm-hmm. us, what was the a critical moment was when in 2017, the mobile payment volume overtook Chinese GDP. And that is special because there are not right. that many KPIs that are larger than a country's GDP, especially not right. China's GDP. So kind of thought, hey, there must be something really spectacular going on. Um, I think it's, it's 2.5 you look, times GDP now, right? For the yes, that's 2020. And then if you dig down more into it, what you actually find out is that only like a fourth, a fifth of that volume is monetized. The rest is other transaction types, especially around uh, peer-to-peer payments. But still, it's a big number. And the P2P payments are still kind of big and important. You know, still Venmo and Cash App in the US are nowhere near that. And Zelle as well not. So that's kind of what started us to look into this digital wallet. And another really interesting piece was that if you look at WeChat Pay or Alipay in China, is that what you will see for WeChat Pay is that 50% of the screen is actually not reserved for financial services, but other commercial services. So you can order food, taxi, buy a movie ticket or whatnot. So there is this commercial function as well. So the way that we like to think about 
these digital wallets, and this also applies then to companies like Square, is to, and we do this in the Big Ideas presentation, is to kind of outline like, what is the opportunity here? What would happen at maximum penetration? So in other words, for digital wallet is basically how much are the financial services relationships of the average US adult worth? And would that mean for digital wallet? What would it mean if an average US adult would actually use one app to manage multiple of his or her financial uh, relationships and use multiple financial products through that one app? And, you know, that's, I think, because that's where this is going over the long term. If I look at a company like Square, of course, I could think about where is the attach rate for the Square Cash App debit card going to be in the next quarter. But first of all, I'm just kind of guessing. And second of all, I don't really know what Square is going to do in the next quarter. They're probably going to launch maybe another product, a lending product or something that I don't know. So rather than trying to predict everything from a bottoms-up perspective, in this Big Ideas presentation, we kind of ask the bigger top-down question. And obviously, in the specific companies, you have to check those numbers from a bottoms-up perspective. They actually make sense if they fit to the historic revenue and check in with that on a quarter-to-quarter basis to make sure you're not out of touch. But the top-down view is really what we present in the Big Ideas presentation. And for the example for the digital wallet, what is the average US adult worth? What are his or her financial services relationships worth? We think that's worth roughly $10,000 split between payments, insurance, credit, saving and spending, and brokerage. And how we do that across those categories is, for example, for payments, we take the average retail spend per consumer and we apply debit card interchange rate uncapped, obviously, as all the fintechs are taking advantage of the German amendment at around 1.5% and apply a reasonable EBITDA margin of around 30 to 40% EBITDA margin and an EBITDA EBITDA, uh, multiple. And we basically get to kind of the enterprise value of that particular relationship, what it would be worth, what investors could pay for it. And we do that kind of math across different product categories. And I think then you can ask the interesting question like, okay, what happens if a company is able to penetrate 20% of a customer's retail spend, right? right? That's kind of the questions you can ask based on that, which I think make more sense in the long term. Um, So that's on the financial services side. And then we also include that commercial opportunity where we say, These digital wallets, they could also work as kind of lead gen engines where you could charge a lead generation fee if you're able to redirect those customers to other retailers. And you could say that fees for them a 5%. So that would actually add another $10,000. Again, at maturity, this doesn't mean that you should value today each cash app customer at $20,000. But it does say that if we're going to that direction, that's kind of what's up for grabs. That's where I think a lot of companies are going for. If you listen to PayPal's Investor Day, right. it's all around digital wallets. If you listen mm-hmm. to SoFi's so back presentation, yeah. this is the theme, right? So that's kind of our approach that we've taken and that we've laid out in the Big Ideas presentation. Yeah, the whole report is really interesting. I encourage everyone to give it a read, not just for fintech, but for all the other sectors that you cover as well. 
I'll link it in the episode description. So now you touched on it tangentially and laid out the macro landscape to set up my next question, Max, which is, of course, your Square thesis. Square is about 10% of the ARK F portfolio, a crazy number and concentration by some estimates. Our listeners and anyone who holds the ETF would love to understand your conviction and, of course, how Cash App has supercharged expectations for this hot fintech. On Cash App, first, the point for us, most important point, this point is their custom acquisition, the very efficient custom acquisition. And just for a second to zoom out again, what's so fascinating about these digital wallets, especially in emerging markets, is how easy it was for them to acquire literally hundreds of millions of users. And we think that's primarily because in emerging markets, you did not have much financial services infrastructure or the users were not really using a lot, especially not a lot of digital financial services. So it's actually pretty easy for a big company that was already commanding a, a large user base, such as Alibaba, and then with Alipay, or a WeChat with WeChat Pay, or a Grab in Southeast Asia with Grab Pay, or Gojek with Gojek Pay, to, to kind of cross-sell their existing user bases onto those financial services platforms. And just generally for in those markets, like you've also had big wallets in Vietnam and so forth that have been growing pretty easily just because users are not really using that much financial services uh, there. Whereas in the US, you can paint a different picture and say, it's one example, Venmo launched a debit card a couple of years ago that wasn't really that successful, probably right. because a lot of Venmo's existing customers already are using Chase or Bank yeah. of America or something. Or you can look at Facebook's Messenger and see that they had payments enabled in the US in the Messenger throughout the 2010s, but still you had Venmo and Cash App popping right. up. So clearly users didn't really, it wasn't really enough. That example, last example, SoFi partnered with Samsung last year to build kind of a wallet with a debit card and I think also a bank account in Samsung Pay. Samsung has around 50 million users or smartphone users in the US, estimated. You didn't really hear much about that uh, yeah. on the SoFi spec, which is weird. You would think you would hear <laughs> about that huge distribution partnership. So the right. point I'm trying to make is that in developed markets where people are already using financial services, the custom acquisition is actually pretty hard. And it isn't enough to just embed the thing in your offering the debit card or whatever, or to just, you know, launch a flashy app and a debit card that comes with it, you actually have to think about how to acquire customers. And what we have found is that Cash App's approach of acquiring customers through peer-to-peer -peer payments is just a superpower. And their ability to acquire customers at $5 per customer is just a huge advantage, not only versus uh, traditional financial institutions, which are paying up to a thousand, but also to other fintechs, which are not growing organically via peer-to-peer -peer payments and the network effects stem from them, but that have to spend money for performance marketing. Their customer acquisition costs can go into the low triple digit hundred range as well. So that is something that really excites us about the Cash App. And then 
And all what follows from that is that you still have to cross-sell those users into other uh, product categories. Mm -hmm. And I think what has worked well for Cash App is that they've started with this unbanked, underbanked part of the population. And that's probably why they also had a bunch of success cross-selling those users. So they have to do their work to kind of go up market and also to change the perception of their app from a free money sending app to an app where you actually are trust and want to deposit higher amounts of money in there and spend more money with. But we're actually pretty confident that they're able to do that. And all the signals that we see from up to this point, I think are looking good. If you look at the cash card and what they're doing with Boost and Bitcoin and and so forth, I think those are all good signals that are going into the right direction. So that is the, the main our main conviction point on Cash App. And then broadly on Square, Right, on still the seller this other side. huge business. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that other, that Everybody other talks about business. Cash App. It's uh, yeah, it started with something else. <laughs> yeah, that's just so ironic that before the COVID crisis, nobody talked about Cash App. Not and we all. think it was really misunderstood. In the COVID crisis, everybody was forced to look for something else that is there because obviously the seller right. business was struggling. So they found the Cash App and now everybody's running with the Cash App. And people are maybe a bit forgetting about the seller business, which we think is also a really solid business that now has this huge advantage of having a bank license and for us is able to, in our view, to really um, offer more holistic financial offering now to merchants really with a real bank account that they can offer. Before that, they did that through the Square card for merchants, but it was really that bank account really a substitute more for it a bit. So that is interesting. And just generally their product offering that they have, just the software that that they offer alongside with the hardware, of course, but the software that makes the offering pretty sticky. If you are organizing your team meetings through the Square software, or if you have a Square loan, or if you use marketing services by Square and so forth, you are probably less likely to opt out of their payment services, if that's even possible for you. So those stickiness effects that come with offering software alongside this core hardware product for us makes the company very attractive. And then the third point, which is maybe the most interesting for Square, is that they have this opportunity to merge these two ecosystems, the cash app and the seller. I think in a way that very little other companies have, because if you think about it, there are not that many companies that have direct front-end access to both merchants and consumers. Like Square can directly talk to and incentivize a consumer through the Cash App, literally the screen of the Cash App directly, as well as they can do the same thing with the seller, where the seller is using obviously the the terminal or whatever other hardware, square hardware they're using. And if you think about, you know, you can say, well, Visa also has relationships with both consumers and merchants. Well, the consumers have the cards in their wallet, but there's still the issuing bank in between them and a number of other players as well. And for the merchants, it's acquiring bank and, and others. So the opportunity that Square has is really that they have this direct access which also means that if they decide to merge that, there's also nobody in between there. And for us, it was really fascinating to see that they're actually already working on this with cash for business, which is 
basically a product that enables Square merchants to take payments from Cash App users through the Cash App. So the merchant would sign up for a merchant Cash App account and then can get paid directly via Cash App by consumers. And from our understanding, those transactions are basically changes in an internal ledger and Square can capture the full 2.75%, I think they're charging there. And that's just extremely powerful. And that's yeah. already at a, I think, over 100 million revenue uh, business uh, for Square. Actually, not sure if it's revenue run rate or revenue, but it's a significant business already for Square. Mm-hmm. And I think in the last year in Q3, when I talked about it, I think it was Q3, they already did 10% of GPB through that. And you can imagine if they not only keep that kind of this closed loop payment system within Square, but you can imagine if they open it up and say, go to merchants and say like, hey, we have 36 million users that you're able to attract by maybe partnering with us for a boost reward or including Cash App as a checkout function or both to incentivize users. And I think that's actually what Square already is working on. If you look at some of their job postings, they're actually talking about exactly working on that kind of functionality. And that is a big, big call option for Square. That was awesome, Max. Thank you for that overview. So final question, it seems like it's not too long ago that Square itself was a private company that had a lot of great tailwinds and was on the way to going public. Another company that comes to mind that now fits that mold is Stripe, obviously much larger than Square was when it was pre-IPO. But in 2019, you said that unicorns were overvalued by about 50%. I can imagine you've probably added a zero to that percentage now (laughs) if you think that that was the case in 2019. So what is your view on accessing private markets in an ETF structure? Democratizing access to private markets has been exploding since the pandemic. And you can't be watching Stripe trade at its extreme valuation now and not think about a way in. Yeah, that number that you quoted was actually from a really fascinating paper from a Stanford professor who kind of looked across the board. And I'll share the paper later. It's it's super fascinating. And we looked at the private space, especially pre-COVID. And what our thinking there was basically is that you had this massive influx of capital. And if you actually add up all the valuations of unicorns globally, back when I did the last calculation at some point last year, it was around $2 trillion. And the question for us really was, is it realistic that those $2 trillion are ever going to be realized are ever going to be actually find an exit and liquidity and how is that going to happen i think some of that we now see with SPACs and a wave of ipos that are taking advantage of the i guess favorable market environment the question i think in some sense still holds what i would also say though is that it also flipped (laughs) In some sense, where I think now you can draw the other comparison and say, hey, there are companies that are, if you look at two comparable companies and one is in the private space and one is in the public space, maybe the public one is actually more overvalued. Coming back to what you said or just the beginning of the conversation. And now we're in the public markets and things move fast. I mean, I don't know if, when, when this is going to be online, this conversation, but before the market uh, volatility that we saw in kind of February, March, what you could do is to look at the buy now, pay later space. And what I found super interesting is that 
Klarna's valuation of 31 billion would actually be a discount if you would use a firm's uh, price to sales multiple. If you would put a firm's price to sales multiple on Klarna's revenue, Klarna would actually, with the private valuation, would actually be like undervalued by, I think, 30% right. or something. Now, they're also, they have different revenue streams. Probably it's not a complete Apple's comparison, but that was kind of interesting. Right. So you, you, also, you also asked about ETFs and access <laughs> to the private markets. That's a question it's hard for me to answer because obviously there are a lot of regulatory constraints to that sure. around the accredited investor guidelines, right? I think the SPACs are kind of going into that direction where technically, if you think about it, these companies, they would probably have raised another private round with you know, sovereign wealth yeah. funds and hedge funds participating. And now those rounds are basically open to the public. On the other hand, what that brings is, in our view, often actually, yeah, not that great of an alignment of incentives. Mm -hmm. And we do see in SPACs, we see uh, problems, especially around disclosures or the lack rather of disclosures, where these SPAC presentations are basically full of five-year price target projections or not price target or you know right. revenue caggers and and whatnot and you have to do a lot of digging um, to in different sec filings of the the spac acquisition vehicle where you can actually find out about some of the historic data because that's normally what you would go off in a traditional s1, s1. right and s1 yeah. is this really broad showcase of the company how it actually works how it has worked in the past. Mm -hmm. There's not much about the future. And then that gets kind of reality checked by the sell side and analysts and other investors on, on the roadshow and so forth. It's actually a process that in some sense also protects investors. I think there's probably a middle ground where you actually have to also share. You can do SPAC, but maybe also have to share a little more bit of disclosures. I think that would be appreciated, not only from our side, because for us, it's our job. Like I have to go into those filings and, and read the 500 page S4 filing that is now coming out with a SPAC. But a lot of retail investors, they're seeing the flashy slides and the revenue projections over the next five years. And it's often not really easy to find out if that's actually reasonable or not. I think what has what, what is kind of our value proposition at ARC and what we believe in is to be transparent and provide retail investors with a lot of information that we stand behind and that we actually do a lot of research about. And that is what we present. And I think that's kind of the way here, to be really transparent and to share as much as you can. And I think that's why the reception of ARC was so good because we're actually laying our cards on the tables and there's Absolutely. no, I don't want to say hiding of financial, historic financials, but I think that's just the way to go. So I guess my answer here is that we definitely would want to see more retail investor participation, but we as a firm really value the truthful presentation of our thesis and what we believe to be true or likely to happen in, in the future, of course, thinking about compliance here. So that's kind of our mm -hmm. take on that. And will we see private 
assets ever included in ETF? I don't know. And I don't know if it's actually the right instrument for that. That's not really something that I can talk to. No, Max, that was fantastic and completely agreed. Again, we talked about this being the episode, but just ARC's major you know, ethos of transparency, I think that is definitely, a, at least you know, for myself, a retail investor, it's just such a positive. And SPACs, I do like the positive take that they're democratizing access to the private markets for retail investors. But yes, there are a lot of concerns that come along with it. And I think there was a chart in The Economist the other day that just compared you know, SPACs, timelines, or projections to $10 billion in revenue versus how it has been for other companies. And, you know, it was like an average of three, four, five years versus, you know, what takes most companies eight to 10 years plus to reach 10 billion. So in closing, Max, first of all, thank you for coming on the podcast. This has been great. You have one last thing. This is the rapid fire question round. We've got about seven, eight questions for you, Max, 10 second response each. Are you ready? Let's go. Awesome. All right. First one, fintech hero. Uh, Jack Dorsey. Investing hero, not named Kathy Wood. Brad Winton, also at our firm, but gets way too <laughs> little exposure uh, publicly. He's great. Uh, thing about Kathy Wood that would surprise most people. Actually, something that I learned on today's morning meeting, she can speak Gaelish. I think that's the term for this Celtic, Irish. Yeah, Gaelic. Yeah, yeah. yeah. She's, from Ireland, she's from Ireland and she lived there for a number of years. So Today, she showcased us some of those um, phrases. That was really unexpected. That's awesome. Speaking of Stripe, maybe that's a good way to warm up to the Collisons. How about thoughts on NFTs? Probably big, yes. But let's see. And we're (laughs) following them closely. Got it. Uh, Most overrated fintech trend? Building a digital wallet without efficient customer acquisition. Well, Max, I want to thank you again for coming on today's episode of the Warren Fintech Podcast. This was fantastic. A lot of information, one that I'm going to find myself listening to quite a few times. And I'm very excited to share this with our listeners. Thank you so much. Thank you for listening to today's episode of the Warren Fintech Podcast. If you like the show, please consider leaving us a review. And if you're looking for more fintech content, subscribe to our podcast channel and find us on LinkedIn, Instagram, Twitter, and Medium at Wharton Fintech. There you will find articles, videos, and much more analyzing all aspects of the industry. I've linked our accounts in the episode description. I would also like to thank our editor, Rafael Ostria, for his incredible work on our episodes. Signing off, I'm your host, Ryan Zauk. Thank you.